Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch, real bourbon, no apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Campari America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me is my co-host, Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing okay, getting ready for Christmas. Oh, yes. I record in my wood shop, but also like to my right is my wood shop bench, which is covered with all the kids' Christmas presents, and none of them are wrapped, so I probably should get that done before one of them tries to sneak in here. Ours is hidden in our garage with the key hidden, so they can't get in there. (laughs) Unwrapped. I'm doing that tonight. Yeah, I need to. I might put a movie on or something and try to get through some of it tonight. With five kids, rapping is like a marathon. (laughs) It's also crazy to think that this is our last episode of 2016. That's crazy. We'll take next week off for family holiday stuff. We actually have this where we'll have three weeks off, but you guys will only be missing one episode. And we'll be back on January 2nd with a new year and many, many new exciting episodes. And I think after this break, we don't plan on taking one until June when we're in Indianapolis for CrimeCon. Don't hold me to that because, you know, life happens. But as far as we're going right now, we'll be going straight through till June. And speaking of CrimeCon, ticket prices go up after the first of the year. So go to CrimeCon.com, use the code INSIGHTFUL20 to get 20% off your ticket. Some guests have been announced. Nancy Grace will be there, Aphrodite Jones, Carl Marino, who plays Joe Kenda in Homicide Hunter, he'll be there. Swoon. That's (laughs) pretty much the universal response to that. Jody Arias' attorney will be there, and... John Ronson will be there, who is one of my favorite nonfiction authors, so I'm really excited. He wrote The Psychopath Test and Men Who Stare at Goats. I emailed CrimeCon already to make sure he was going to be signing books, and he will be, so bring your books. And there'll be criminologists, forensic investigators, attorneys, a dog search and rescue team, and then, of course, the podcasts. This is going to be the most amazing true crime podcast meetup ever. I could go on with all the awesome podcasts that will be there. So definitely go out to CrimeCon.com. You can see the guests there. You can get your tickets. And again, use Insightful20 for 20% off. Tonight's episode was suggested by Nicola and Angela when I was lamenting online about how I lost my favorite mystery when Lori Erica Ruff's identity was announced. This is another Doe case, only it involves a couple who are known as Jock and Jane Doe, or collectively as the Sumter County Does. On August 9th, 1976, a truck driver named Martin Durant found two bodies on the side of a remote dirt road. And this area is still undeveloped today. Though it's a low traffic area, it was the frontage road for I-95, which is 
The major interstate that runs down the east coast of the United States from Maine all the way to Florida. The fact that a trucker found them uh, makes me wonder if the bodies were visible from the interstate. The trucker was using the frontage road as a place to stop and rest when he saw the bodies. So they weren't really far from the highway, but it does seem like an odd place to stop even just to rest. So my guess is he may have seen something from the highway and pulled off. You would imagine at that time of the morning and he was in his truck, they would have had to be fairly visible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was up high in his truck. They were on, you know, the downslope of a hill. I think he would have seen them. Exactly. The investigation showed that early in that morning, a man who's been described as a hermit saw the pair dropped off at that spot and heard gunshots, and then the car drove off. He saw this from some distance, and reports are vague, and they vary on what he actually saw. He may have just seen a car, heard gunshots, and then saw a car leave. He didn't see, it doesn't seem like he saw the make and model of the car, but that's it's possible that just information hasn't been released. And it's also unknown if the car belonged to the couple or not. One of the odd points in this case that caught my attention is that both victims are reported to have three identical gunshot wounds. One in the back, one in the chest, and one in the throat. That said, it's also been reported that the throat shot was actually in the back of the head, with the throat as an exit wound, or it's been reported that it was under the neck. Now, you know, varying reports and consistent reporting, this is what we deal with. I think, honestly, under the neck is probably the most consistent one I've seen. Based on the bullets that were used, it's believed that the gun was a three fifty seven. So can we talk about the victims one at a time and then we can look at possible motives as well as possible matches that people have floated about? A few months after the murders, the husband of an employee at the KOA campground, which is near Santee, South Carolina, he called the police. You'll see in some places that he is the employee of the campground himself but when you dig a little deeper and you read the actual news articles it was actually his wife that worked there and her husband would just hang out at the campground and socialize with the campers. Santee is less than an hour's drive south from the area the Sumter couple were found and this husband remembers the couple and he even played pool with the man. According to the campground employee, the man went by the name Jock, and it's written J-O-C-K in the case file. It is possible he was using the French name Jacques, and that plays into some later theories. But regardless, he became known as Jock Doe, and for the benefits of this episode, that's what we'll refer to him as. The couple stayed in the campground a few nights before, according to Jock, they left to head for Florida. They stayed at the campground again on their way back up, and this pool playing incident occurred in the summer of 1975. Jock gave a little backstory. Whether it was true or not, we don't know for sure, but Jock said he was from Canada, where his dad was a successful doctor. 
He said that he had been disowned by his family when he quit pursuing a career in medicine. I did read somewhere that he said he was a teacher. He gave no reason for roaming the country and he mentioned that this was more like a vacation than a purpose, Chris McKenlet style. Jock tried to pawn a ring to the husband of the employee and he later said that this was the ring that was later found on Jock when he was found killed. And this ring could give a clue to who Jock was, but again, we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, Jock looked young, so it was initially thought he was in his late teens to early 20s. However, a dentist had a look at his teeth to make a record to see if he could potentially be a dental match to another missing person. And this dentist believed that Jock was closer to 27. And I became curious on how a dentist could estimate an age based on teeth, So here is another strange search that is going to come up on my internet history, along with your Ford driving meth use, Charlie. But basically, and there is a lot of variables here based on diet and cultures, but the basics are that your teeth and jaw actually keep developing right up to your mid-20s. One of these is that the molars don't grow completely until your mid-20s. Then past that, the teeth get little tiny growth lines on them, similar to like rings on a tree when you cut it down. And all of this is extremely accurate. So basically, I would go off the dental age estimate of 27 and that he was aging very, very well. So based on his physical appearance and teeth, the official range entered into NamUs is 18 to 30 years old. So not a wide range at all. He was just over six foot tall, or about 182 centimetres, and about 150 pounds, or 68 kilograms. His build is described as athletic. However, at that height and weight, I would imagine he would be quite slim. He had two scars on his right shoulder that, that I have read that it is suggested that these scars may say that he played contact sports at some time. I'm a bit unsure why they come to that conclusion, but that's what it says. And he had brown hair, brown eyes, and an olive tone to his skin. Both he and Jane were actually quite a very attractive pair. And if you want to know what Jock looks like, don't go off the artistic composition of him. It makes him look, look, I don't know how to put it, but he was actually much better looking in real life. Maybe Google the morgue photos, which is pretty in-your-face graphic, but it does give a better representation of what he looks like. As far as clothing goes, he was wearing faded jeans and a red T-shirt with Cause America's light beer on the front and Camel Challenger GT Sabring races in Florida on the back. So while this tells us where the shirt itself comes from, Whether Jock got it at the races or from a second-hand shop or it was given to him by someone as a gift or whatever, we don't know. Oh, and another interesting point, neither he nor Jane were wearing any underwear. He had two notable accessories with him. One was that ring that the campground employee's husband remembered he had tried to sell him. It was 14 karat gold. It had a 
gray star stone and the initials JPF were engraved on the side. Now, the J fits if we're working under the theory that his name was really Jacques, though it could be a family heirloom or, again, something he picked up secondhand. I mean, the initials were carved on the inside. He may have just liked the ring and picked it up at a thrift store. And I know we'll get to this later in theories, but it's also possible that he stole the ring and he said his name was Jock to create a backstory to support what was on the ring. And on his left wrist, he wore a 1968 Belova Accutron, and I hope I uh, probably didn't even say that right, yellow gold watch with a serial number. The company did not have the records anymore as they were the victim of decluttering. The serial number couldn't even be traced to a distribution area for further investigation, though there may be a random jewelry store that has a record out there. But in 1976 or earlier, these would have been paper records and not exactly searchable. Again, he could have acquired it secondhand, though the authorities have said they believe that it was that he had gotten it new, and I'm not entirely sure how they could tell that, but they the couple did seem like they came from a well-to-do background, partly because of some high-quality dental work he had had done. So based on his age, it could have been a high school graduation gift. Which is interesting because if they were that, I guess, desperate for money to try to pawn a ring that if it had his initials in it, it must have some it must have some sentimental value. I guess that could also support the fact that he was disowned by his family, but I don't know how that works with the affluent family theory. Right. Yeah, it, a lot of this is, this feels like a, a case where there's a whole bunch of pieces, but we're still missing a whole bunch that, so we're just kind of sitting here spinning our wheels on some of these things. But the watch and the ring, I feel, are a little out of place. And when we talk about Jane's accessories, it might highlight it a little more. It's like getting a bunch of different pieces from different puzzles and wonder why it doesn't fit. Right. Because we don't, some of this stuff could be completely irrelevant to anything. Like his Florida t-shirt, he could have gotten it at the Goodwill, and that's all there is to that. And Jane's poor dress sense, which comes in a moment. (laughs) So Jane Doe, like Jock, was described as clean cut, and she resembled Jock enough that it was initially thought they may be related and possibly even siblings. She was younger, more like the 18 to 20-year-old range. She was 5'5 and about 100 pounds, so slender, just like Jock. She had pierced ears and notably long eyelashes. She had three moles on her face. There were two on her left cheek and one on her right. And the two on her left were pretty distinctive. If you, I mean, they were large enough that they were visible and, you know, added some, a notable factor to her face it goes back to face recognition i think if you saw her you'd have something to focus on and you would remember her later on right her hair was brown and medium length and her eyes were blue gray she had the same olive undertones to her skin her hair was a little bit reddish too to the brown not not red but you know not the dark brown that jocks was Her clothing was not as regionally specific as Jock. She was wearing 
cut-off blue jeans, a pink halter top that tied in the front, and an unbleached muslin blouse over it. She had wedge-heeled sandals with lavender, purple, and pink straps, and they were Stride Right brand. I thought Stride Right only made children's shoes. I had no idea they made shoes for anyone other than children. So we're all learning something today. On your Christmas list, I'm sure. <laughs> and her accessories might be better clues than her her rather generic clothing. And unlike Jock's accessories, these don't appear to be expensive. She had three rings, and all of them were silver, and all were in that handmade Native American-Mexican style. I read online descriptions of the rings, and then I looked at the pictures, so I'm going to just go ahead and describe what I saw and not what I read. And we'll include pictures on our Facebook page so you guys can see this for yourself. One ring has a scrolled feather with a red stone on the outer side and a bluish stone inserted into the curve. I did a Google image search on it, and I found similar ones for sale online, actually. They could go on eBay and get a similar ring. And they're described as vintage, native, southwestern, red coral, and turquoise rings. The second ring has a long black stone with what appears to be two smaller stones, probably turquoise, but it could be opal, set into the black stone. Now, the third ring is described online as having red, white, and blue stones, but the picture of the ring I saw appears without stones. So I'm not entirely sure what's going on with that. But it's a silver band ring with three indentations where you could imagine stones being glued in, kind of like costume jewelry. So her jewelry was definitely a very specific style, though not something that would have been expensive. Now, it looked like something that you would buy from a truck stop along the way. Yeah, it was all very generic. I mean, if you're in the southwest of the U.S., you could probably find them on those people who set up their shop on the side of the road even. Yeah. So one thing about her appearance that people have made a lot of is that she did not have shaved legs. Now, a lot of people believe this meant she was likely European or South American, as women in North America did and still do tend to shave their legs. But honestly, this could have been a convenience issue. Uh, I mean, Jock found time and space to shave his face somehow, but maybe that just didn't work for Jane, or maybe she just didn't like to do it. I mean, just because... Most North Americans shave their legs doesn't mean all of them do. And it was the 1970s. Anything goes. Yeah, we're talking, I mean, this is second wave feminism, and a lot of women purposely yeah. stopped shaving during this time. She could have just been a feminist. Or, you know, like me, just lazy. But neither of them had <laughs> wallets, money, or IDs. And this would make you think that they were robbed. Because when I say no, while it's money or IDs, I also mean no possessions were found with them, which does sound like robbery, except Jock's watch and ring being left behind doesn't really fit so much with the robbery. I find the underwear thing more unusual than the shaved legs. I mean, I suppose their underwear could have been stolen from them like their wallets and purses, or they could have just as easily not been wearing any. But the point I'm trying to make here is I think the missing underwear is probably more unusual than unshaved legs. Oh, I agree. 
I agree with that. But I don't have a really good theory for the missing underwear. Put your hands up and give me your underwear. It doesn't <laughs> seem to really go. No, no. So the autopsy found that neither Jock or Jane were smokers. They didn't have any alcohol in their systems, and Jane had also never been pregnant. The autopsy also showed that both had either eaten fruit or maybe fruit and ice cream not long before their deaths. There was a report that someone, having seen a couple matching their description at a fruit stand, however, they couldn't remember if they were with anyone else or if they had their own vehicle with them. And also in the autopsy was that Jane had dental work. She had two missing wisdom teeth along with fillings in her back teeth. But it was Jock that had the extensive dental work. And really, if extensive could be an understatement, this would be one of those times. A dentist at the time said it appeared as if he was in the process of a complete reconstruction and he was only about halfway through the procedure. He had root canals with crowns and a bridge. He was also missing teeth, which I guess is where being halfway through the reconstruction comes in. A forensic dentist charted all the work he had done, including a less common root canal method, and he publicised it in hopes that the dentist would recognise the work and then recognise the man, but it never came to anything. It's unclear if the dental charting made it outside the US, and from what I read, it wasn't part of any news coverage internationally. I know that agencies were contacted in Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, and in the Mediterranean, but there doesn't seem to be any news reports, which I think would have been a huge mistake in this case. But the unusual root canal method does point towards it possibly being done in another country. And when you piece that together with the expensive watch and the expensive ring, it does kind of point towards at least Jock coming from an affluent family. As we said, the two looked quite a bit alike in their facial features and skin tone, and for decades it was believed that they were likely siblings. In 1976, they couldn't do a DNA match, but years later they could. In 2007, Jock and Jane were exhumed for DNA testing, and it was proven that they were not siblings. Their fingerprints, dental records, and now their DNA are on file waiting for a match. Now I'm going to answer a question that has come up regularly since Lori Erica Ruff's true identity was found using a private DNA company one of those that helps you find your ancestry. These companies do not take completed DNA profiles to run, and they do not take tissue samples. They only take saliva samples from the person wanting to have their DNA run. So how did they match Lori Erica Ruff? The truth is they didn't match her. They matched her daughter. With Having a known descendant, they were able to run her daughter's saliva through and find the extended relatives. So I know that I keep seeing this question come up online. Why can't we do this Ancestry.com DNA match for more John and Jane Doe's? And this is why you they don't take anything except saliva. Because the problem would be then you would need a relative, but then if you had a relative 
you would know who they were and exactly there wouldn't be any point. Yes, Lori Erica Ruff's case was an exception to the rule. Very few John and Jane Doe's leave a known relative behind yet still have a mysterious background. That's not exactly that doesn't happen. And there are a whole host of legal, ethical, and business reasons that these private DNA companies who that run and then store people's DNA don't want to get involved with law enforcement or get involved with running the DNA of someone who is not consenting to it or running familial DNA on anyone who doesn't want it run on them. Using familial DNA matches within law enforcement is a tricky subject. Private businesses do not want to jump into that. Do you know how fast business would dry up if people thought that this company was storing their DNA and it could be accessed by law enforcement later? They'd all go out of business. There's, They are not going to get into this. So while that was so great that it was able to match Lori Erica Ruff and give her family some answers, it's just not something that we are, it's not an avenue that's opened up to us. So there was a brief lead for a bit. In Jock's pants, there was a box of matches from Grant's truck stop. Now, there were three Grant's truck stops at the time the Sumter County does were found. One was in Nebraska, New Mexico, and then Idaho. A mechanic who worked at the Nebraska Grant's truck stop said that he recognized Jock. He said he worked on a vehicle that had either Washington or Oregon plates. I couldn't find where the make or the model of the car or truck was described. In fact, I don't really know if it was a car or a truck that he worked on. The matches and the mechanic story, it didn't really lead anywhere, unfortunately. Truth is, if the pair were hitchhiking, they could have picked up the matches from any trucker or truck stop along the way. The biggest lead came four months later when police in Lada, South Carolina, about an hour or so away from Sumter, pulled over a man named Lonnie George Henry, and he was arrested for driving under the influence. Under the seat of his car, they found a thirty-eight caliber handgun with the serial number filed off. Forensic tests concluded that Henry's revolver was the murder weapon. They matched the bullets taken from the bodies to this weapon. And I know we said that police believed that it was a 357 that was used, but a 38 and a 357 are similarly sized guns and can both use some of the same bullets, depending on case length, and that's just not relevant to this discussion. The point is that by saying the gun was likely a 357, they weren't saying that it could not have been a 38. Henry took a polygraph, and on the direct question if he killed Jane and Jock, he said no and passed. But other questions indicated deception, leading the investigators to wonder if he knew something or was covering for someone else. Perhaps someone else with access to his gun had committed the murders. I don't put a lot of stock in polygraphs. I put actually very little in them. The evidence for them just isn't where it needs to be for me to accept it. But regardless of how I feel about them, the investigators felt they were on to something. Henry first told the officers that he bought the gun off a truck driver and didn't realize for days that the serial number was filed off. 
But when the serial number was eventually recovered, because they can lift them sometimes, even if they've been scratched off, it matched a gun purchased by Henry's brother. So it wasn't a... He clearly didn't get it from a truck driver if his brother's the one who bought it. But it wasn't a direct purchase. It went from the manufacturer to a store to an owner who reported it stolen to being sold again and again. And it took some time for them to track it to Henry's brother. He assured police that the serial number was on the gun when he got it and when he gifted it to Henry for Christmas several years before. Henry then admitted he had filed the serial number off. So his story about this gun is changing rather rapidly. That said, he had motive to lie in general, even if he didn't do it. If they said, this gun was used in the crime, where did you get it? He had motive to lie about the gun, even if he was not the murderer. But he was set free because the police confirmed his alibi. His wife was in the hospital in North Carolina, and he was with her. They did a drive test and just determined there was not enough time for him to have left the hospital, made it to the crime scene, and then made it back to his wife with no one knowing he was gone. So Lonnie Henry is now deceased. He is still the biggest lead that the police have released to any information about to the public. So let's go ahead and talk about motives. And the three main motives here are drugs, carjacking, or robbery. And... The drugs and carjacking mean we have to assume they had their own vehicle. And we don't know that for sure. They could have been hitchhiking. But let's go ahead and assume they had a vehicle. Another theory is that this was a professional hit. Having all three shots being in the exact same way kind of seems rather sophisticated and not someone who overreacted to a situation. A professional hit could kind of probably go under the drug connection subheading i would think so now of course we don't have we don't know who they were so we don't have any victimology to point us in some direction or the other but is there a direction that you lean towards ali well going through one by one drugs could be a possibility it was the 70s and people were more inclined to party and experiment with drugs They may have needed some money, which was evident with Jock trying to pawn his ring. So they could have got involved in some kind of minor drug buying scam and they just tried to scam the wrong person who came back after them. A few years after Jock and Jane were found, I did read that there was a drug smuggling ring rampant in the in the ranks of IMSA racing, which was on the shirt that Jock was wearing. So there is some kind of connection there. Driving up and down I-95, particularly down to Florida, is a known drug route. And they also appeared to be well-to-do, yet they were staying on the download in campgrounds. So, I mean, both of those kind of point towards possible drugs. On the other hand, they didn't have any alcohol or drugs in their systems. With the carjacking, I don't think they were hitchhikers themselves because my gut feeling is they were traveling by car and their vehicle was hijacked, possibly by a hitchhiker that they picked up for maybe the campsite or along the road somewhere. And the hitchhiker shot them in their car and took their camping gear and money. 
Because the problems I have believing that they were traveling by foot is not only where are their backpacks, but their clothing would have been worn where the straps had been sitting or there would have been marks on their skin. But the main thing is is the shoes that they were wearing. Jane's shoes didn't seem like something that you would wear if you were walking for long periods of time. No, they were wedge sandals. Even being the fantastic stride right comfortable brand that they are, they wouldn't have been comfortable for walking. And like you said, none of their belongings were ever found at a campsite or abandoned in a hotel. And I imagine the police looked. So I could see the their belongings still being in the car. I mean, we don't have evidence they had a car, but it's kind of hard to prove a negative. And it seems to make more sense that they had somewhere their belongings were in. And going back to the campsite, something that stuck with me, and look, I never went camping in the US in the 1970s, unfortunately, but wouldn't there have been some kind of sign-in register when you went camping there? I imagine, especially at a KOA, that's like a chain brand of campgrounds. This wasn't, yeah, you know, some someone owned some property and opened up some campsites. So I would imagine there would have been some type of sign-in, sign-out sheet, whether they would have kept it for a year, because it was a year between that sighting and when they were found. That they would have kept it that whole year, I don't know. They may have thrown it away at the end of every season. And where I don't think it's robbery, because if it was, why did the killer leave all the jewellery? As we both said, the ring and the watch were worth something. So why would they leave all this nice jewellery but take the underwear? What's wrong with this picture? It was a robbery in the sense that whoever drove that car off took their belongings, but that wasn't the motive. You know, I'm not really sure which way I lean. It does seem a bit like a hit, or that they were killed by someone with some experience, someone who was able to subdue both of them. Controlled shot, where he shot both of them in the same three spots. So, you know, but whether it was drug-related or something else related, which we can talk about a little bit when we talk about possible matches, I don't know. To me, it couldn't have been just a random, I'm going to take your car, shoot, shoot, you're dead. Because of what you said, it was like a professional hit. To shoot someone or two people in the exact same places, that takes experience. Definitely someone who did it before to hit the same three spots. Exactly. So while people do look at individuals who may match up, because we don't know if they knew each other when they went missing... It's possible that Jock and Jane met up on the road where they had both disappeared or ran away from their lives. But a lot of people lean towards them being a couple who went missing together. And I think a lot of this is because of how much they look alike. It seems like they're from the same area or the same ethnic background. And what are the odds that they would meet somebody of the same ethnic background just out and about? And that's another thing. Sorry, going back to the campsite, this man who played pool with Jock, I can't, I couldn't find anywhere that Jock had an accent. So if he was from somewhere in the Mediterranean or anything like that, Mexico, I think one of the things that would have stood out would have been the accent. I agree. And 
I didn't see where it said that he had an accent. So if we're assuming that this was Jock, because, I mean, we're not 100% sure. It had been a year since he had had this interaction with him. I think there's there are enough clues that it's probably likely it was him. But he may have had a light accent and said he was from Canada to cover it up, thinking someone in South Carolina is not going to... I mean, depending on the part of Canada, some have quite distinct accents from the generic American accent or a Southern accent like you hear in South Carolina. So maybe he had an accent and that's why he said he was from Canada to cover it up. But I didn't okay. see it explicitly said either. And that's been a a point that's holding me up as well. Let's go ahead and walk through some couples who have been put forth as possible matches. If anything, I mean... Most of these are probably not close to the mark, but it'll boost the signal on some missing couples because, I mean, their families are still looking for them. The first couple we're going to talk about are Canadians Terry Pettit and her husband Ron Yakumchuk, and I know I'm saying that wrong and I apologize to every Ukrainian out there. They loaded up their old Volkswagen Beetle in on June 9th, 1973 in Edmonton, Alberta. And their car was quite distinctive. It was red with a green hood and a green bumper. And it was full of their belongings. They were headed east to Montreal first to attend a wedding. And then they had plans to settle in the Maritimes to look for work. And if you're like me and not Canadian, you might be wondering what the Maritimes are. What's the Maritimes? They are collectively the eastern provinces of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island. And oddly, it does not include Newfoundland and Labrador, which I looked up why, and that's just another story. So (laughs) I won't take you down that rabbit hole with me. However, they were looking in those three provinces for work. That was the plan. Ron was a teacher and Terry was a journalist, and they stopped about halfway on their journey to Montreal near Brandon, Manitoba. And the next day, they stopped in Dryden, Ontario, to mail a one-word postcard back to Edmonton. And then they were never heard from again, and they never made it to the wedding. Um, I actually know Canadian geography, even if I don't know what the Maritimes are. This is a really long trip from Alberta all the way to eastern Canada. And a lot of their friends didn't think their car was going to make it and had some concerns about that. And I think Ron had also expressed some concerns about the car making this long trip. So this postcard sent from Dryden had one word, N-Y-A-H, written on it. And it's reported that Terry was fond of saying nya in a playful, taunting way. So some people think that she was kind of teasing whoever it was sent to. Basically, we made it this far, even though you guys didn't think we would. But I mean, that's all that it said on the postcard. That makes sense. So could they be the Sumter Doe's? The first thing that says no is that they went missing three years before. And they gave no indication they planned on disappearing. They loaded up their things. They made plans. They stopped and visited friends along the way. And they told everyone where they were intending on going. And the postcard, you would think if they intended to go missing, it would be some sort of goodbye message. Right. And Terry was described as adventurous and just get out there and do things. But Ron was sensible and down to earth. And people wouldn't have expected him to just disappear on a whim. 
The physical similarities, Ron was 27 when he went missing, putting him at the upper range of Jock Doe's age. He had dark hair and brown eyes, and he was the same approximate height and weight, and he had the the similar angular facial features that Jock had. And Terry was 23 at the time of her disappearance, putting her a little bit older than Jane Doe's estimated age. Similar height. She was a little bit heavier when she disappeared, but over three years she could have lost some weight. And she also had those blue-green grayish eyes. But otherwise, it doesn't really seem like a match. Terry wore glasses and had blonde hair, and she also had extensive dental work, which Jane did not have. Terry was an ardent feminist who probably didn't shave her legs, but again, the shaving legs thing, I think that's a red herring, and it's a piece of that puzzle that's actually irrelevant. Ron looks similar enough that you could think maybe it would be a match, but he would have had to split from Terry at some point because Terry and Jane were not the same person. They looked nothing alike, really. No, really not. The next couple often thought of as a match is Michael and Cordelia McMinn. The McMinns left Hawaii in May of 1976 on their 25-foot trimaran. Their plan was to set sail to Washington State. They were never heard from again. So this sounds much like a lost at sea story that you love so much, Charlie. Always my favourite. But there were reports of them and their boat within 25 miles from their destination port, and there had been sightings of the boat in waters just north of the US-Canadian border. This theory fits best if you believe that the Sumter County Does were involved in drug running. However, when you think about the logistics, sailing from Hawaii to Washington through Canada, then travelling to South Carolina to Florida and then back to South Carolina just to run some drugs, it doesn't seem to fit. It is probably the best one we have, unless, of course, you go with the favourite default theory of that they just disappeared to start a new life somewhere, either selling or abandoning their boat along the line. For similarities, I think it's Cordelia people look at the closest. She was about the same height, weight, and she has the same colourings as Jane Doe. And she was 26 years old at the time she went missing. So she's, I think she's too old to be Jane myself. Michael was also 26, so around the same, around the right age to be Jock. And also had brown hair and brown eyes like Jock. He did wear glasses and had a moustache or a beard. But of course, these things can be removed or shaved off. So they aren't deal breakers either way. I couldn't find any mention of Michael being in the middle of dental reconstruction, and I think that would be something of note in any missing persons report. But there is nothing, nothing that I could find anyway. And now our next two theories come with a little bit of history lessons, which, unlike the sarcastic, you know, lost at sea stories being my favorite, these actually are my favorite, are things with history lessons. They stretch our imagination a little bit, which don't make them my favorite theories, but they have history in them. So here we go anyway. From (laughs) the early 1970s until the mid-1980s, Argentina was dealing with what has become known as the Dirty War. 
the right-wing Argentine anti-communist alliance actively looked for any political dissidents and killed them. They also killed anyone they thought was a socialist, left-wing, or even left-leaning. Death squads killed thousands, and thousands more disappeared. As is the case with these types of events, it's hard to get a firm number on how many died or disappeared, but it's probably around 20 to 30,000. One couple that disappeared were Cesar and Maria Marte Lugones. They ran a little school and were taken from their home at 3 a.m. on May 14, 1976, around 3 a.m. The doorman of the building reported that he was woken up by military men who asked for Maria Marta's apartment. When they came down, they had the couple in handcuffs with hoods over their heads. And I will say the physical similarities are striking if we're looking at their pictures. Agreed. If you go to the website that has photos of the hundreds of missing young people, a lot of them actually look like Jock and Jane. A lot of them. So while a lot of South American countries had non-European immigrants over the years, Argentina had not at that time. And Argentina had African slavery But after it was abolished, the African descendant populations plummeted. Now, that's another history lesson for another day. But the point of that is that most Argentinians looked more European than we usually think of when we think of Hispanic people. Jock and Jane resembled enough of the faces of the disappeared that I don't think coming from Argentina is out of the question. But why are we looking at Cesar and Maria Marta specifically? And personally, I think it's a matter of profile. Maria Marta's father was a diplomat to Mexico, and her mother has been at the forefront of the movement to get answers from the government as to what happened to all these people. So their story and pictures have been out there, and people have noticed the similarities. The odds that Cesar and Maria Marta, or anyone, escaped or were were released from the death squads and were able to somehow make it to the U.S. and walk around freely is debatable. But, I mean, I guess it's possible. But for it to be Cesar and Maria, we have to assume the campground conversation was not with Jock. They didn't go missing until 1976, and this conversation happened in 75. So we have to say that that campground conversation was with someone else and he was mistaken the identity. I couldn't find it mentioned that they were roaming the U.S. in 1975 or even why they would be traveling with some cover story or why they would have gone back to Argentina at this time. So we have to believe one or the other. Either it was Cesar and Maria or the campground story happened. It can't be both. And this would come back to the idea that they were victims of a hit. If they were somehow found by the enemy in the U.S., they could have been followed and assassinated, or, you know, they could have just been at the wrong place at the wrong time, making them very unlucky to have survived the death squads, only to be victims of some random crime in South Carolina. So while I do think they do look like a lot of the disappeared on that website, I'm, I'm not sold that it could be. But I do think Argentina would be a good place to start looking in general for their ethnic makeup, maybe. And this is the problem I had with there not being any news reports outside of the US. If 
people believe that they are Mediterranean or European or anything like that, then why not spread the word, get it out in the media? Right. So our next theory is a bit of a vague one, but it also has to do with a warring country. In the 1970s, the island country of Cyprus went through some serious political and military turmoil. Cyprus was home to both Greek and Turkish Supretes. In 1974, there were a coup with the end goal of uniting Cyprus with Greece. Turkey then invaded under the excuse of trying to enforce the Cyprus constitution. It all went belly up from there, and again, that's another story for another day. One day I'll have my history podcast and we'll cover all these topics. In the end, there were over 2,000 Supreets, both Greek and Turkish, and they were all missing. It is very possible that some of these may have escaped the island. Due to Jock and Jane's looks, many believe, as we have said, that they may have been from Mediterranean descent, and this would explain why a young couple, from which from all appearances were from a well-to-do background, why they would be bumming around the US and why they would have no money and trying to pawn expensive jewellery because that's all they had. Yeah, and why they would not shave legs. I don't know. The I could If the Sumter County does were actually found in Europe, I would, I would probably lean towards them being Cyprian. Because they were found in North America, I kind of feel like it's more likely that they came from either North or South America. So do you have any closing thoughts on the Sumter County Does? There is one thing that I did want to want to say, and something that I picked up when I was doing my research. It's, just, it's that doing research for this case was challenging. I know that you would have noticed this, Charlie, but a lot of the news articles, the leaks, the blog posts, etc., they had all been removed or just disappeared into the interwebs. I think that this is one of the saddest things for me, that people have just forgotten about this couple, that there is most likely family out there that have no idea what ever happened to their son or daughter or friend. This is the only... This is one of the only times you'll hear me say this, but thank goodness for Wikipedia in this case. The Wikipedia page for the Sumter County Does is quite extensive and accurate, so if you are interested in reading about this case after listening to this episode, I recommend going to our website and clicking on through to the Wikipedia page. Unfortunately, as I said, most of the referring links are gone, but you then can go and branch out into the NamUs pages and the Doe Network pages for this couple. But beyond that, it is quite threadbare, unfortunately. Most of the information I found was speculation and not actual information about about them. And like you said, any the Wikipedia article or any other summary article that had links to their primary sources i'd click on them and they're gone the newspaper articles i even went to newspapers.com which is a paid subscription service and i couldn't find anything which tells me there probably wasn't a whole lot in print newspapers at least not that's been digitized for us to look through at this point it's a it was a difficult one to research in 
in that sense. I mean, if you are feeling brave and you are happy to read about speculation, there is extensive web sleuths pages, but you you do have to dig a lot to find one nugget of information. Right. Yeah. And so Ali's right on this. You know, we, we'd never say this, but Wikipedia is where you really need to go. And I love Wikipedia for my own, I'm curious about something, very quickly want to read up on it, or I want to find their referring links so that I can look up yeah. the topic more. So I really don't want to bash Wikipedia at all. It's a great service, but it's not something we generally lean on because it's not a primary source. But primary sources were so thin in this case. And the Wikipedia page does seem to back up a lot of what is out there. And it is, it's one of the longest Wikipedia pages that I've seen. Right. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode and to all of those out there who are helping me on my quest to find a new favorite mystery. <laughs> if you want to suggest any, you can find us on Facebook at Insight Pod. We have a page, but we also have a closed discussion group where we chat a lot. I'm really a forum type person, so having a Facebook group is really a lot of fun for me. And, and I love the Facebook group. They you all share articles and you all talk amongst yourselves. It's really good. Yeah. We really we've really enjoyed it. I'm glad we got it off the ground even though I was a little hesitant at first. If you want to talk to me directly, I'm at in on Twitter at insightfulpod. So if you have something 140 characters or less to say, that's a great place to send it. Allie's on Instagram at InsightPod. You can email us much longer things at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. We also have a website with links to all of our episodes, plus articles, plus occasional supplemental material like timelines. And those are at InsightPod.com. And so we hope everyone has a great holiday season and Happy New Year. Bye.